You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 13th of October 2019 on Monocle 24. It's Sunday the 13th of October. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Emma Nelson and a very warm welcome to today's programme. Coming up today is the love affair with Fox finally over for Donald Trump. After he tweets it's no longer like the good old days, we wonder who'll be watching. Also ahead, the President's lawyer is closer and closer to being formally investigated. So how much is his boss backing Rudy Giuliani? Well, I don't know. I haven't spoken to Rudy. I spoke to him yesterday briefly. Uh, He's a very good attorney and he has been my attorney. Yeah, sure. The politics and security expert Charles Hacker will join me in the studio to discuss that and the day's newspapers too. Monocle's House View starts now. And we welcome to the studio the political and security expert Charles Hacker from Control Risks. Hello, Charles. Good morning, Emma. Time was, if you wanted to know what Donald Trump was enjoying on television, you'd turn on Fox News. But has this romance faded? In a tweet posted by the US president, Mr Trump referred to the good old days. From the day I announced I was running for president, he says, I have never, in capitals, had an at Fox News poll. That's good. That's what he tweeted on Thursday. Whoever their pollster is, they suck. So what's gotten wrong? Um, Charles, just explain to us, for those of us who are not glued to Fox News uh, 24 hours a day, uh, there are more than one of us, um, explain to us just exactly the, the sort of the, the position that Fox News has adopted. We know that there is a love affair, but just how deep does this love affair go? Yes, I suppose the only thing that matters is the one person who is glued to Fox News 24-7, and that is President Trump. Um, Fox News plays a unique, perhaps, role in the U.S. media in that it is the channel of the Trump base. And so this is an organization that pretty much no matter what time of day you tune in, with a couple of glaring exceptions that we'll talk about in a second, but pretty much no matter what time you tune in, this is an organization that is promoting, underlying, emphasizing the Trump line on topics like immigration or on international affairs or on employment and the economy uh, and on sort of the topic of the day, whatever it may be. And it is basically thought that Fox News is both a barometer of what's happening inside the Trump base, but also to sort of carry on with the meteorological metaphor that Fox News essentially makes the political weather in the United States and that it is agenda setting and agenda promoting. And this is watched entirely by a Trump supporting base or is it it's always been right wing, but has it positioned itself as a particularly Trump benefiting network? Never overtly. Um, But if you were to look at the opinion side of the broadcast, and and of course, like a lot of television stations um, and cable channels, Fox has opinion shows that are very strongly personality driven, and it has news shows that also feature significant personalities but are more event driven. Um, And if you look at the opinion side, it is very, very pro-Trump. In fact, um, Emma, I think you are right that it is a fairly overtly Trump 
boosting organization because you will have seen it hasn't happened recently, but um, there have been times when Fox News personalities have appeared at Trump political rallies. Most notably, Sean Hannity took to the podium at a Trump rally and introduced the president with some short welcoming remarks. And, and that is very much, even though Hannity is the, the equivalent of, of sort of an opinion columnist in a newspaper, um, it, it, it really blurred any distinction of, of separation or objectivity or distance, uh, you know, arm's length distance uh, between that particular broadcast, that particular television network and, and the president. And so there's an incredible blurring of, of the boundaries um, between Fox as an independent television channel um, and the Trump administration. Trump, uh, Fox News is, is often referred to as sort of the state broadcaster for its support of, of the Trump administration. Uh, so, yeah, I think it's, it's fairly overtly out there um, in front of the president. So let's talk about this, this sea change that people are mentioning. Um, we have an incredibly loyalist network here, and suddenly a Fox News poll suggests that 51% of those who answered the call to, 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 who, who took part in the poll wanted to see the president impeached and removed, and then an extra 4% said he should be impeached but not removed. Um, and it was at that point that um, Donald Trump, ever the um, the man to change his mind at the drop of a hat, just suddenly went, whoever their pollster is, this, they suck. I mean, it, this was a big moment for Fox News, wasn't it? I mean, the 51% the, the of respondents, that's a tiny margin, but it's miles. I mean, I think... It's interesting that they that they conducted this poll. Uh, perhaps they knew what it would say when the results were tabulated, um, and and you have to wonder were there any voices inside the organization that said, you know what, let's not broadcast this poll because it's going to inject a level of doubt in our viewers about what's going on with the president. Um, but they went ahead and they published the results that, as you say, suggests that 51% um, of the people surveyed in this poll um, feel that the president should be impeached and removed from office. And, you know, the viewer in chief went incandescent and had a go at Fox News and that particularly presidential use of language by saying that their pollsters suck. Um, What's happening? We have to unpack what's happening in the relationship between the right wing media and the president, because, of course, also this this week we had the resignation of Shepard Smith, who is one of the leading news executives at Fox News. He's not an opinion columnist. He doesn't have his own um, opinion show. Um, but he announced on the air um, on Friday that it was his last broadcast. It took many of his colleagues live on television by surprise. And the backstory here is it's believed that there's enormous tension between Shepard Smith on the news side and the right wing opinion columnists um, on the opinion side of, of Fox. And so you wonder with the publication of these fairly damning poll results, um, with the resignation of Shepard Smith, um, I don't want to say in a huff, um, but certainly in conflict. He was clearly making a point when he, he resigned, for starters, he resigned live on air. Yeah. That's, that's always a statement. And secondly, he said, facts will win the day. The truth will always matter and journalism and journalists will thrive, making an explicit accusation that there are no facts 
There are no, not enough truth and that journalism is really you know, on the back foot here at Vogue. Yeah, facts will always win. Oh, and by the way, I'm out of here. Um, so you wonder whether there isn't some sort of you know, boiling point being reached in the, the ability of organizations to sort of hew to a consistent political line. And I think there are a couple of things to unpack here. Um, first of all, sometimes Fox News hammers President Trump when he is not right-wing enough, um, when they felt that he was about to go soft on guns and when they felt that he was going too soft on immigration. Um, they hammered him and they hammered him very hard. Um, and so there was a departure there. Um, Tucker Carlson, who is one of the most vocal Trump supporters uh, on Fox, um, has also, it seems, drawn a line on the Ukraine matter and this idea that the president pressured the president of Ukraine to investigate Joe and Hunter Biden, uh, the former vice president of the United States and his son, um, and of course, Joe Biden, current presidential candidate in the Democratic primaries, that Trump threatened to withhold aid from Ukraine unless it opened an investigation into Joe and Hunter Biden. And Tucker Carlson seems to have drawn some sort of line by saying, you know what, that's really enough. Even this president who we love, who we boost, who we defend, and who we protect may have crossed a line on this. And I wonder, as we unpack this, if we don't, if we need to look at a couple of other things, and that is that there's often discussed um, the influence of Lachlan and James Murdoch on Fox and Fox News. These are, of course, um, the sons and heirs apparent to Rupert Mur Murdoch, who owns the show. And it's believed that because Lachlan and James are a little bit younger, a little bit modern, um, and a little bit more moderate politically, that they have, some, had, have had some sort of moderating em emphasis on the tone of Fox News. So uh, where does this leave the rest of the right-wing media, or indeed if you are a Trump supporter, and these moderate voices are now diluting the concentrated rhetoric of Fox... Is this a sign that the right-wing media are perhaps aware that uh, that they're onto a hiding to nothing with Trump? I mean, what I'm basically trying to ask is, is the, is the right-wing media having to change its mind because it realises that it needs to get ready for when Trump isn't there anymore, either because he's been impeached or because he loses the election? I think, I think there's something to that. I, I think that there will, be, there will begin shortly with the election coming up and with the impeachment investigation, there will be a great covering of hindquarters um, as revelations emerge over the course of the investigation and, of, and in the presidential campaign. Um, that's one thing. But um, the right-wing media has not gone fully away from their beloved president because Fox is not the only voice. Uh, we have Breitbart which is so far still holding a fairly strong pro-Trump line. And then the other great ocean of right-wing media supporting the president is talk radio in the United States and people like Rush Limbaugh, who are doubling, tripling, quadrupling down on the president and are still um, an oasis of support uh, for President Trump. One other weather vane in the American right-wing media is the Drudge Report, 
which started in I think 1995 as a very gossipy sort of email blast that came out every day, and people hung on the sort of Hollywood and political gossip. Um, the Drudge Report is now a leading conservative voice. It's one of these aggregating websites where you go there and you just click on millions of other articles. Um, it's very conservative. It's very populist, and it's hugely influential. It gets um, up to three million visits a day. Uh, and there is some thought out there that the Drudge Report is now beginning to waver. Drudge Report is driven almost entirely by clicks. So anything controversial that you can say, including a criticism of the sitting president, is going to drive clicks to Drudge. Okay, let's move on to uh, a man who has been in the shadows and then very much in the spotlight for a very, very long time. The U.S. president's lawyer, Rudy Giuliani. He made his name as a heroic figure as New York's mayor after the 9-11 attacks. More recently, however, this time in the role of President Trump's attorney, he's become rather more erratic as a voice of the U.S. administration. But having Donald Trump as your boss doesn't help. Last week, the president said he didn't even know if Mr. Giuliani was still his personal attorney. Right, Charles, um, there's a great story with Rudy Giuliani, isn't there? Because... I think he became incredibly famous, well, he, he, he became famous in the immediate wake of the 9-11 attacks when he became the hero figure when he was mayor of New York. And he made that great comment about the, the number of people who had been killed when asked how many people have keen to killed, he said, more than we can bear. And at that point, the world saw him cemented as a, as a hero. However, he's a much more complicated figure than that, isn't he? He's an incredibly complicated individual with a very long and complex backstory. Um, you're right that he was essentially made as an international superstar as the mayor of New York. And it was actually in, in the declining months of his administration uh, before he handed over to Michael Bloomberg um, that September 11th came along. And, and he was known as America's mayor because it was a, a moment when the United States, which has always had very ambivalent feelings about New York, but the United States embraced New York and it embraced Rudy Giuliani as its mayor. Uh, so he was vaulted into a particularly bright spotlight by the events of 9-11. But Rudy, Rudy Giuliani has always been in the spotlight and, and it's perhaps because he's always wanted the spotlight. And that may explain some of his current behavior, which some people find absolutely unfathomable. And if you look at his recent television appearances, particularly on places like Fox News, um, you can't help but come to the conclusion that the guy's come a little bit unstuck. Well, I mean, just look, giving an example, I think he was, um, CNN loved to do a sort of Giuliani watch. And yeah. they always have a, what's Giuliani said now? And he was on Fox News a couple of weeks ago and he was, um, I'm quoting directly, uh, shut up, moron, shut up, shut up. You don't know what you're talking about, idiot. Now, some people might say in a, in a cool, calm, calm day, light of day that that's, Possibly not the language that should be used by, by a government attorney. However, in the rhetoric world of Donald Trump, that's pretty much the bullying approach that is endorsed by the man in the White House. Yeah, exactly right. He's following very much the tone of his boss. Um, he is a private attorney now working for public official number one in the United States. And yeah, he's got that sort of pit bull approach towards, towards rhetoric and towards argument and towards debate. Um, 
We should take for a second a look at, at who he was in the past, because I think this informs a little bit about where he is now. Um, in the 1980s, smack in the middle of the 1980s, from 1983 to 1989, um, Rudy Giuliani was the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, which basically means that he was the chief prosecutor in Manhattan and, and the surrounding area, which meant that in those six years when he was the, the area's chief prosecutor, he put away a lot of high-profile bad guys. Um, he put away members of the New York Five Mafia families. He put away Wall Street crooks uh, like even Boski and Michael Milken. And we also know that during this time, Rudy Giuliani uh, perfected, patented, and essentially put out there what we call the perp walk, which is when you take a criminal suspect and you very demonstrably and publicly march him or her in front of the TV cameras in handcuffs. Um, perp, of course, being the perpetrator. And the perp walk is meant to be this incredible moment of public shame for somebody who is anticipating a long criminal trial ahead of, of him and her. And it was it was Rudy Giuliani that, that milked that moment for its PR value. He's been a business consultant. He's been a management consultant. He's run his own security company. Um, he's been all over the place. But now he's in trouble. Because of this extra governmental role that he's accused of, of 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 playing in the attempts by Donald Trump to pressure Ukraine into into dishing some dirt on Joe Biden and his family, um, how much trouble is Giuliani in? Given the fact that the wheels have come off in terms of his public image in so many ways, will an investigation actually do anything other than perhaps get Donald Trump just to push him off a cliff, as he has done to so many others? Yeah, that's right. So we wonder whether. Uh, Rudy Giuliani should be expecting the same fate, for example, as Michael Cohen, um, who Donald Trump very publicly disowned and said, you know, this was a, he was a horrible lawyer and I got rid of him and I felt sorry for him and, and, and he stopped working for me a long time ago. And, and there were those initial signs of sort of, you know, bus marks on Rudy Giuliani's back uh, when President Trump said, oh, I don't know anything about any of this. You'll have to talk to Rudy because, of course, two people who are Rudy Giuliani's associates um, have been arrested as they were trying to flee the United States. Um, and these are, th these are two individuals who we believe are going to be co-conspirators in what's going on with Biden and Ukraine and what's known as Ukraine Gate or Ukraine Alago, as some people are trying to, talk, to, to label it. Um, there have been initial reports in the media that Mr. Giuliani himself is under investigation by the agency that he used to run in the Southern District of New York. Um, and so it is entirely possible that in the next few days, in the next few weeks, we will see a very high-profile divorce between Rudy Giuliani and the president, and that Mr. Giuliani, Mr. Giuliani himself will come very close to, if not fully involved in legal difficulties. We live in a world, though, now that... Um so many things have been thrown, so much mud has been thrown at, at Donald Trump and his administration. None of it seems to have stuck. I mean, the impeachment is happening. Many many are suggesting that, um, in actual fact, this will, it will never succeed because of the, the, sort of the political numbers. But even if you do have Giuliani being uh, investigated for trying to get the Ukrainians to, to, to stir up trouble... Will that make any difference to the Trump administration or are we still running in this parallel universe? You know, it's so funny. Ronald Reagan was called the Teflon president because all kinds of accusations leveled at him 
uh, seemed not to stick to him. And, and there's something happening about the amount of accusations thrown at President Trump and thrown at all of the people that he seems to surround himself with that haven't yet really adhered to the president. I mean, granted, a lot of his former associates are convicted felons now. Some of them are in jail, like Michael Cohen. Um, but the president himself hasn't yet really suffered um, anything more than a glancing blow. Um, some people feel that this is down to the weakness of the Democrats. Some people feel that this is down to an increasing level of indifference in the legal system, um, the rapidity of, of, of the news cycle, um, and, and the fact that you can't really make any, anything stick. Um, at some point, uh, a wheel has to come off somewhere. Uh, and it will be either from Giuliani or it'll be from somebody who finally decides that they've had enough and, and they break what appears to be this sort of oath of more or less silence of former Trump associates who have never really let the cat out of the bag. You're listening to Monocle's House View with me, Emma Nelson. Joining me in the studio is the political and security expert, Charles Hecker. In a moment, we look at the day's newspapers. Stay with us. Weighing in at almost 400 pages, the Monocle Guide to Cozy Homes is packed with everything you need to know about making a great place to live. The book is filled with handsome residences and all the contacts you need to make a home that will last a lifetime. And it's a book that celebrates the people who know homes should be able to cope with kids, dogs and a few scuff marks too. It's a book that knows a home is only as good as the community it's in. And it's a book that takes you through the front doors of everything from mountain hideaways to modernist towers. So be cosy and buy your copy today at monocle.com. You're listening to Monocle's House View. I'm Emma Nelson, joined today by Charles Hecker, the security and politics expert. Welcome back, Charles. Thank you. We're going to have a look in the in the remaining few minutes that we've got on today's Monocle's House View at the weekend papers. Um, you wanted to focus on uh, the Financial Times this weekend edition, which is always worth a good couple of days read, um, and the House and Home section. Not not something that I would necessarily have immediately suggested you could make a beeline for, but you <laughs> have just you have done just that. Um, yes, perhaps not the newsiest section of the weekend papers and maybe not the newsiest section of the FT, but there is a full-page headline here that has to grab your attention. And, and the headline says, how will we live in the 2020s? And, and I think everybody, first of all, wants to know that we'll be alive in the 2020s. And then secondly, hopefully, given that, what's it going to be like? And, and the FT takes us into a little bit of futurology and tells us what the sort of home of the future will be like and makes three main points. And they're all absolutely fascinating. And the first thing is the FT says echo homes will become symbols of status. So for anyone out there who is talking about how their house is painted in Farrow and Ball, uh, in Farrow and Ball's latest tones, um, I think we're going to have to move further. And the idea of having a net zero home or what's called a passive house is now going to be the new status symbol. Um, and what they do is they take us into the renovation of a particular individual who actually spent a hundred thousand pounds, nothing to sneeze at, to make his home 100% net zero, meaning, of course, that it spends it, 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 it you spend less energy than it than it um, well it contributes 
energy to the grid rather than taking energy off the grid. Which is something that the FT has made very clear that the UK has got a pretty bad track record in terms of our housing stock. And a lot of our housing stock has stood the test of time because an awful lot of it is Victorian. It dates back, you know, 100, 150 years. It's solid. It doesn't fall over. It's brilliant to live in. But boy, is it leaky in terms of carbon emissions. Well, it's, um, it's lovely to look at and it's, and it's lovely to live inside, but it's drafty and it's leaky, and it's more than 100 years old, and it was built at a time when the echo movement, just there was no there was no such concept of it. Um, and you can see these sort of half-hearted attempts to put solar panels on the rooftops of London's Victorian row houses, London's Victorian terraces, um, but that's not going far enough. And apparently the further we go in making our homes carbon neutral and energy net neutral, the more we'll be able to brag about it rather but rather than talking about how much our sofa cost or how where we bought our latest oven from, uh, we're going to talk about how green our houses are. Um, the other thing is an increase, the FT tells us, in build to rent neighborhoods that this are going to be... Corporations own great neighborhoods. Yeah. They, they've taken the housing stock, they've created it, and instead of selling it, you rent there. Now, this is entirely perfect for an itinerant city such as London. Exactly right. Although it's missing and, 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 and it makes London a little bit more like New York, where an enormous amount of people will never own a home and will spend their entire lives paying rent to live in a building owned by a company. And it looks like that's what's coming to London and coming to the UK. And we'd better get ready for that. And those companies, by the way, that have built these houses, they're going to be responsible for the area of the city that we live in. They're going to run the grid. They're going to run the utilities. They're going to own the shops that we shop at. And it's the sort of, as you pointed out, this sort of corporatization of neighborhoods. This sounds almost sort of 19th century Marx and Engels going back into Manchester where enormous, you know, sort of industrial barons controlled the lives of all those who lived in their, you know, lived and worked in their factories. Well, one of the interesting com- uh, comparisons that the FT makes is that this is exactly a modern version of something like the Grosvenor Estate in Mayfair. Um, except that you were... That's, that's not quite the, quite the satanic mills that I was talking about. No, no, exactly. <laughs> a little I'm, smarter. I've, 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 I've jumped over to another part of the, of the, another end of the other end of the economic scale there. But um, this idea of being a resident of a greater landlord is, um, is what the FT is, is telling us is coming. Um, the third thing that the FT tells us about life in the, in the 2020s and how we're going to live is that we're going to live in houses made by factories. And so what this will do for us is a number of things. Um, first of all, things might look a little bit Lego-like in the future, but we will have the opportunity to customize our homes much in the way we customize cars when we walk into a car dealership and say, yes, I want a two-door, and yes, I want it to be silver, and I want this kind of radio, and that kind of air conditioning, and this kind of carpeting, and this color seats. We'll be able to do that with our homes, um, and in doing so, we will, of course, be playing catch-up to Scandinavia. We're talking about the idea of the modular home. Yes. They're being made 
in huge numbers now in the just outside London at the moment. And I think the world's tallest modular block of flats is just is going up in Croydon. Um, it's an astonishing space that's being done that they just like throw these these houses up. It's not a new idea, but it's certainly a new practice, isn't it, in terms of the spe- speed and scale now that we're, we're, we're moving. And there it is, Croydon sort of leading the way in the United Kingdom. I was unaware of that. You'd be that surprised really about it. Croy- Croydon and town planning are, are, are quite an interesting combination. Right. Um, but um, it, it's happening. I think it's a question now of scale in the 2020s. Um, only 5% of homes built in the UK have any sort of modular component. And by the way, I have to say, you know, uh, uh, looking at some of the pictures in this story from the FT, the homes are actually enormously attractive. They're very modern looking. Um, They've got wood, they've got glass, they've got metal, they've got stone. Um, They're very handsome, modern looking homes. Um, And, but only 5% of them are built this way in the UK, 10% in Germany, 15% of Japanese homes have some sort of modular component. And get ready for it, 45% of the homes in Finland, Norway, and Sweden are built in this modular fashion. It works against the idea of planning laws, though, because a lot of people have criticised local planning companies in the United Kingdom, local local administrations in the UK at, um, at least, for being slow in allowing for planning laws to be relaxed and to, to rebuild. You need to move quickly when you've got modular homes, haven't you? You need to say, I've got that plot of land, I can get this done fast. That's right. Um, it's, it's a much quicker way to get into a house, which has its own advantages because all we talk about here in the UK is a housing shortage. This is a way to economically and ecologically get people under rooftops um, but you do have to move very quickly. Charles Hecker, thank you so much for joining us on the programme. That's all we have time for today. My thanks to my guest, Charles Hecker, and our supervising producer, Ben Ryland, our researcher, Charlie Phil McCourt, and our studio manager was Nora Hall. You've been listening to Sunday's Monocle House View Live on Monocle 24. For now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening and enjoy your weekend.